to Line of Credit, a podcast by Merrick's Capital where we bring you insights from across the private credit space in agriculture, commercial real estate, infrastructure, energy and more. Your host is Adrian Redlick, Executive Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Merrick's Capital. Our guest this episode is James Milligan, Managing Director of Sydney-based property developer Milligan Group. Welcome, everyone, to the sixth version of Line of Credit. I'm Adrian Redlick, the CIO of Merrick's Capital, and today I'm excited to be chatting with James Milligan, the founder of the Milligan Group. Uh, James is an office developer extraordinaire in Sydney and a key partner with us on a couple of developments which Merrick's Capital and our investors are funding. Welcome, James. Hi, Adrian. Thank you very much for having me on, um, and thank you for the kind words as well. I appreciate that. Yeah, so James was just telling me, um, listeners before, this is his first podcast, so we'll be kind to him. <laughs> He's done a lot of a lot of extraordinary things in his life, from jumping out of planes to uh, fearing to develop office buildings in the midst of COVID, mm-hmm. but um, he's new to podcasts. So James, whilst we kick off, maybe the best thing to do is sort of jump in and give listeners and our investors a bit of background on yourself, pre-Milligan Group and and post and a couple of the things that you've developed. Yep. This is a, a two-hour podcast, right, is it? The short version, preferably. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So obviously my name's James Milligan. You know, we, we have a, a development company here in Sydney. We predominantly focus on commercial office developments. However, in the past, we've, we've done a lot of mixed-use residential projects as well. Prior to starting the, the development company, I was in the Australian Army for about eight years as a commando. So fortunate enough to leave when I was 19 and, and join the Special Forces. That was a very exciting career. Uh, I got to, was fortunate enough to go on tour and serve my country on four occasions. I uh, went to Afghanistan three times um, and I also went to East Timor once and, and a few other smaller development deployments as well. Naturally, as, as young guys, you know, get older, they start thinking about what they want to do with their life. And, and I started thinking, well, uh, I would I would really like to, you know, create things for a living rather than spending my time in war-torn countries. So I pretty much had one thing that interested me outside of the military, and that was investing in property. I'd, I'd, I'd kind of built up a small property portfolio whilst I was, um, you know, on deployments, et cetera. So I started researching around property development and, you know, that led me to a few courses at the time that I could study. And I uh, eventually just resigned from the army and started the business in 2010. And since then, we've, we've you know, focused predominantly on the Sydney market. Um, we've done about, uh, it's probably high 20s in terms of projects now to date. So, so we've been extremely busy over the 13 year period. And we're, of course, funding you on your York Street development, um, yes. which is a refurbishment of two office buildings. So I think it's going to be one of the coolest buildings in Sydney. Mm. We're too cool for those of us in finance and probably more suited to those in tech and advertising. Um, but I did a site visit with you the other day. Um, it's quite an extraordinary mm. project. Yeah, no, we're fortunate to have you guys fund us on that and, and to share the vision with us. Um, Sydney, it's a it's an interesting market, and and by developing predominantly in the one local city, um, you know we can really understand the nuances of what's required, and and by street by street, it's it's different as to what you should be creating for potential tenants. Where we are on York Street, there really does lend itself towards creatives and tech tenants. 
So our approach to that redevelopment has been to, to set the project up so that it's very architecturally inspired, uh, still rustic in terms of uh, reutilising the timber structure and the, the uh, brick structure, but we're fortunate enough to have also purchased the neighbouring building, which enables us to complement the old and the new and, and deliver a concrete structure as well. So we get the best of both worlds and and at this stage, you know, it's, it's drawn a huge amount of um, attraction from tech, large tech tenants that have grown out of the Surrey Hills fringe areas that need to be in the CBD. So it's, it's very successful. Um, we're looking forward to seeing it get to the finish line next year. So, James, in summary, York Street, how many square metres of new office space are going to be so, delivering to the market? So, in summary, it's 8,360 square metres of NLA. There's about... Uh, nine and a half thousand square meters of GFA. Predominantly, all of that is commercial, and we have some retail on, on the ground level as well. So, just for listeners, it literally backs onto the Apple Store on George Street. If those are trying to imagine the the proximity of it, um, so right smack bang in the the centre of Sydney. So, one of the things that being a um, commando and jumping out of planes and doing all those sort of things would have uh, set you up for is certainly dealing with some stress and duress, certainly being an office developer um, in the midst of the COVID pandemic with the uncertainties and the, the outlook, um, probably well suited and you know, didn't didn't skip a beat and have, have maintained a, a strong vision and delivered a, a couple of fantastic office buildings in recent times and, and this one under, under development. Maybe just touch on you know, your view on office um, and particularly Sydney office in the context of how the world's changed? Yeah, I, I think that uh, the Sydney office market's outlook is extremely bright. I think that uh, COVID has really just accelerated trends that we were seeing pre, pre-COVID. pre um, So, you know, the increase in amenity and the in the offer that you have to create for, for tenants and for all stakeholders has just been accelerated through that. And I think that uh, Sydney is in particular a, a leader in the market for that. You know, it's also an extremely challenging market to be able to work in and to be able to acquire property, uh, get the planning approvals in place, um, and, and essentially navigate the whole development phase. And because of that, it, it makes good assets quite rare to come to the market. So albeit a difficult playing field, uh, it's quite rewarding in that sense. But I do see Sydney on a macro level you know, maturing a lot as well. And over the years with the infrastructure that's coming into the city and just, just the overall increase of, of supply in a constrained market is just um, adding to resilience of that market. So we we as a business uh, like to buy well-located properties in difficult um, areas for other developers to compete with because we know that that translates to value. And where we've seen in, in other potential markets, obviously Melbourne's a, a fantastic market, but it's somewhat easier to acquire a site and get a planning outcome and, and turn supply on. Whereas Sydney, um, you know, is geographically constrained, planning constrained, uh, it's more expensive and therefore generally in our view can hold its value a lot, a lot better. So we think the outlook is really good. Overall, in terms of the offer for tenants and the quality of buildings, 
essentially, you, you know, you cannot have a successful project anymore moving forward unless you have put your heart and soul into creating a product for the market. The overall concept of just building floor space and, and lease it and it will come just doesn't fly anymore. You need to conceptualize the, the project from the ground up if it's to be successful. And what does that mean? Does that mean more amenity in terms of whether it be end of trip, better co-working space? What Give us some details of, well, for instance, York Street, because we'll talk about some of your other projects after and we can contrast them. But what does that mean for York Street when you visualise it in that, that precinct, which is very tech advertising heavy? Just taking a step back for, from our perspective, what we what we think moving forward with new new office developments and, and what's required to make them successful is is they need to achieve four principles that weren't necessarily tackled in the era pre-COVID or, or say ten years ago. And those those principles for us are purpose environmental sustainability, design and experience. And if you can get all of those points to work well, then you'll have a complete offering and a building that should be remembered uh, and one that won't just, you know, essentially fade into a, a very big marketplace as just an asset and a street number. And I can I can step through um, those four points, if you like, in terms of what they mean to us and, and what we mean specifically by those. Yeah, so be a good example. What do they mean to York Street as an office building? In regards to York Street, the purpose of that building, you know, was to essentially combine the old and the new to utilize the heritage nature of that building, but also to um, implement the new structure. So that, that building for context is, was originally built in 1886. It's currently actually the tallest existing timber structure in Sydney. It's quite significant in terms of, of you know, that it's not heritage, but the original fabric of that building. And the purpose was really to create a, a structure that um, would complement the old and the new and also a, a attract a particular creative style tenant to that part of Sydney. The next point, obviously, environmental sustainability. And um, you know, the reality is moving forward, if anyone's got kids that's listening, um, it's important that whatever we do as business operators, that we we take steps to, to um, essentially do things in a sustainable fashion. Otherwise, there's just no point essentially to, to what we're doing as businesses. So um, for that particular building, part of the repurposing the old and the new um, meant that that building is highly uh, sustainable in terms of our credentials. So we feel that that's, that's been addressed through our, our approach. I mean, we could have just demolished the existing building. Uh, and to be honest, it's been a complex build, so it may have been a bit easier uh, in that sense. But um, then we would have lost, you know, the purpose and we would have lost the environmental effects as well of being able to adaptively reuse it. Um, and then we've got design as well. And, and realistically, that's something that's been around for a long time and that, that's that's workplace design and it, and it covers a broad range of things. But really what it boils down to is creating environments for people to work in that feel comfortable so that they can enhance their lives. And that comes down to daylight, access to daylight, cross ventilation, you know, the circulation spaces, how things are set up and, you know, interconnecting voids and atriums and, and connectivity. It, it, it's so important. You can walk into an office that's poorly designed or you can walk into an office that's that's um, well designed and the effect is dramatic. And it's, it's not necessarily just for the workers that are in the building on a day-to-day -day basis, but it, it's for stakeholders, it's for investors, it's for the builders. 
for everyone that's connected to that project, if they're working on a, a, a project that's designed well, that complements people's lifestyles, it's a, it's a really positive outcome. And probably the, the final one, which I think is really, really important, is experience. It's the experience that you expect people who interact with the building on a daily basis um, to have. And if you have that at the forefront during the design phase, you start locating things in the in, you know in the right place from the start so for example we're seeing often now lobbies being lifted to the higher levels in in towers and buildings so that, that way they can get fmb and in, in uh interactive spaces at the ground planes we're seeing a lot of building curation as well you know, some of the best buildings in the world aren't necessarily the most architecturally inspiring but they're the most curated so they've, they're running events daily for example the you know Rockefeller Center is one of the one of the, the best examples of that it's it's so famous because of the way in which it conducts itself on a daily basis and and that experience really drives back to the purpose what are you you know reinforcing that purpose on a daily basis to the people that interact with the building yeah i think that those four comments and those four principles for us define the pathway that we have through the development phase of creation to completion and when do you expect the tenants to be um to be uh, moving into the building what's the timeline um so we've got half the building committed at the moment uh, they're in their detailed uh, design drawings. We, we help them with them. We take a very hands-on approach with all tenant fit-outs. More often, let's say across all of the projects that we've done, we've probably done integrated fit-outs for tenants for about 50% of them. And we've got some great tenants in our portfolio and groups that we've worked with. Um, and that's just really because you know, the tenants, obviously, uh, it's not their space. They've got other businesses that they do and construction is, is, is you know, is difficult and it requires a different skill set. And we like to take that off their hands and, and ensure that they get into the building uh, on time without having to have the conversa- conversations with the builders that's required along the way. But realistically, with our, our tenants in that building, we're thinking that we should be able to start their, their fit-out works in May and have them in the building a couple of months after that at the PC date. So... Mid twenty twenty three, give or take, it's the the target date. If it ever stops raining in Sydney, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we might we might be a, a month or so behind there, but um, but that's that's where we're sitting at the moment. So maybe a good segue from uh, the existing tallest timber building in Sydney to mm. your new project, which we're extremely excited about. Yeah. So you've just settled the project at the corner of Pitt and Hunter, which is uh, maybe Sydney's most exciting project. I don't think I'm stretching in in talking about that, but it's certainly in the in the top few. Mm. And so we've been really excited to work with you over the last six months to provide the senior debt to acquire three buildings, I think it is, but it's 70-something different acquisitions mm. at the corner of Pitt and Hunter, which is, as I say, one of the most exciting precincts in Sydney. Maybe give um, give her a description of the building, but as I said, the segue, it's going to be the world's tallest hybrid timber building. Yeah, that, that's, that's 100% right, and it'll probably be the world's tallest hybrid timber building for a little while. Yeah, that, that that's uh, obviously an extremely complex project, and we were so grateful to have Merrick's support, and, and, and I can testify that that support was for over 12 months actually uh, in terms of, of of coordinating that settlement it it is uh the site's about 2100 square meters there there were five independent buildings about six titles and 79 lots and about 70 different owners that we coordinated with over a three-year period but our vision for that 
tower and, and it, it, it is in the centre of Sydney CBD. It's one of the last tower sites that that is in the central Sydney planning strategy and it's it's definitely probably the only privately owned tower site. So it's a, it's a pretty amazing opportunity. But with that, you know, it gives us the ability to be able to do what we do and that is, um, you know, immerse ourselves in the detail and, and, and create a product that you may not see other large institutional groups lean towards from the start. And the first thing that we decided we would be doing is we would be constructing that building out of a hybrid timber technology. I think the first thing people think of when they hear that is dollars and risk and how does that work? Um, it's definitely the first thing that we thought of as well. And there's, there's obviously a few few examples out there where um, timber buildings and timber construction can be more expensive. But the way in which we've approached it is we've got an extremely, extremely talented engineering team who effectively have designed the building as if it's a concrete structure. And just to give context, it's a it's a 54-storey tower, about 1,300 square metre floor plates is about all up in the structures, about 65,000 square metres of, of space. And um, all of this is sitting amongst a metro station and a metro cabin. So it's obviously um, quite a big undertaking. And the way in which we approached the uh, timber structure was to design the building, the brief to the to the engineers and to the architects was design the building as if it is a normal post-tension concrete structure, you know, put the core in this place, do the vertical columns, beams, et cetera, set the building out. However, then look for opportunities for us to introduce CLT into certain areas of the building and then cross-referencing that with our fire engineers and the brigade, et cetera, to, to ensure that it's, a, it's an acceptable pathway. And where we landed as a, a, as a result is that it's actually not, in fact, a great, if you go down that pathway, a big difference to, to conventional concrete structure. And the, the way it's achieved is essentially every fourth level is a conventional concrete structure and it's the intermediary floors between those four levels has a um, the vertical columns and the beams, et cetera, or concrete, the core is concrete. However, the, the floor plate in between those sections is a pre prefabricated CLT deck that we drop in. And throughout construction, that, that deck acts as a, a platform um, and formwork for the deck above. above. And it's actually, it, it speeds the delivery of that project up by nearly six months. So in terms of cost premium, it's about a 5 to 7% cost premium to the overall structure. So just for listeners' um, perspective, CLT cross-laminated timber? That's right. So it's timber, effectively you're going to have every three out of four floors are going to be made of timber. Yeah. Pretty amazing at some, you know, 50 five levels up, you're going to be have timber roofs and timber floors and it can be a beautiful structure and obviously far less carbon which goes into concrete. Um, to make concrete, it's going to be pulled out of the project and um, as you say, you're going to, you don't have to pour every floor. So mm. by just whacking down cross-laminated timber, makes it sound easy, but I'm not sure, I'm sure at 55 floors up, still going to have its... Uh, going to have its challenges but yeah. um, the, um, it's certainly going to make it a, a project in demand isn't it from a tenant perspective yeah I, I i believe so i mean it's just to give a sense of the carbon benefits of it, it our our structure which equates to about 70 percent of the carbon footprint of the tower is actually carbon negative 
So by building the tower, it's actually reducing carbon in Sydney through its construction phase. So when I speak to stakeholders, um, I describe it as growing a 55-storey tree in the middle of the city, essentially. So it, it does have positive effect on, on um, people's sentiment towards the project. And the industry by and large is definitely heading that way. Essentially, all new towers in Sydney need to be extremely uh, you know, green and, and tick very high ESG hurdles. Um, but the reality is, from our perspective, we want to create a product that we can be proud of that also ticks the box in terms of our requirement to be environmentally sustainable so that it can be replicated on a larger uh, industry. Really, from a from a tenant perspective, which is you know extremely important to us, we want to be able to bring tenants into the building, showcase a floor that's got this natural aesthetic, this finished timber ceiling, off-form concrete columns and beams, and just realise there is nothing else like that in the market. They cannot walk out of that building and go and lease a space that is that beautiful as well as unique and environmentally friendly. And, the, and you know, the biggest challenge is being able to do it on the basis that it doesn't, it's financially viable. And that was the first thing that we worked through and realized that it's, we, we covered that off. So therefore, you know, it's a reality and it's what will be built. And, and I think that it'd be very unique because until the industry really gets on board and starts rolling this out on a, on a, on a much larger level than what we can achieve in our business, um, it's, it's not as common as it should be. But um, I think it does translate to a lot of value and, and, and even just from in terms of international capital looking for a home, et cetera, it's quite a unique product for them to be able to park money into as well. So I think there's some really unique aspects of this. Obviously, we're touching on the environmentally friendly aspect and you know, for a tonne of concrete and steel that's put into a building, there's in excess of a tonne of carbon released into the atmosphere, whereas when you talk about carbon neutrality, you're talking about the, t- the carbon sequestration in trees that when they grow and that timber is stored there and not released. And so, yeah, it's a big net net positive. But I think it's also just a beautiful product, you know, for people to come and work and, yeah, that sort of sensation being high up in the, the centre of Sydney and, and having that sense of being closer to nature. It's certainly, in our due diligence, it's got great appeal for, for tenants. And, you know, our overarching view of probably being the leading provider of non-bank capital into office development in the last three years, you know, mm-hmm. some thought we were a little a little crazy, um, not quite as crazy as you at the pointy end of the capital stack, taking the, the risk developing these things, but they thought, where are we all going? But what's clear to us is if you build the newest, shiniest, most beautiful buildings, the tenants want to go there. So there, there may be vacancy, but it's most likely not to be in the, the best new buildings. There's always a question mark over what rental you get and what it's going to be, because of course this building won't get delivered until 2027. And beyond, so a lot of assumptions you have to make mm. um, to to get to that number. But I think the other as interesting aspect is in, in developing this this project. Obviously, you spent five years putting together the land package. You spent the last year going through your further planning and getting you know, your um, development approvals, um, and then working with us and and others to get financing in in place. But the interesting thing, it just seems like a big institution as a development group couldn't have done this. Mm. They couldn't have. You know, there was a real sort of element of going door to door to uh, accumulate all those those titles um, to sort of really you know, work with passion and stand on the, the street corners looking at the angles all day long and know as you have mm. to, to create the product. 
Um, do you think so? it's it's something that's been your advantage? Yeah, I, I definitely think it is. I think the large institutional groups have definitely got their own advantages. And, and if you look at where all these tower sites are either built or or in planning, pretty much every single one of them, Sydney is now spoken for. But every single one of those projects has taken you know upwards of a decade to, to pull together. For us, I think the advantage has been that we are a, a private organisation that can make decisions very quickly. Um, we can obviously... You know that 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 kind of risk taking associated with pulling together a, a site is, in our view, offset by our deep understanding of the Sydney uh, office market, but as well as the planning system and, and what's happening. And, and you know, we've been uh, kind of studying the city's planning system for you know thirteen years, and 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 that draft uh, Central Sydney planning strategy was out for five years, and a lot of people didn't know about it until the last two years. You know, we had a high level of conviction as to what we could and couldn't achieve, um, and and we've got a good track record with our planning outcomes. And and, and don't get me wrong, it's an extremely complex planning proposal. Um, there's a whole suite of new environmental tests that you need to consider that are specific to individual properties. Um, you know, for example, Skyview vector testing, wind analysis testing. You know, all these all these items you don't have to deal with in a standard DA application. Um, but once you kind of understand all of those risks and you can see what can and can't be achieved, well, then as a, a private organisation, we'll, you know, we can move quickly. And, and that's right, we managed to pull together 70 different owners across, um, you know, individual strata, suites, et cetera, probably realistically in about six months. So it was probably about 12 months worth of, you know, working on talking and introductions. But once the pen hit the paper, it was probably within six months we had those guys all pulled together and we form strong relationships with every single one of them. Um, I personally have spoken to pretty much every single one of those owners regularly. Um, and you know, they've been great to work with. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I can't see a universe where an institutional group would have been able to have done that. It's, it's, it's disappointing because there are obviously a lot of strata buildings and complex amalgamation sites that can be pulled together and should be pulled together. It's a good thing for Sydney. Yeah, so it certainly struck us, and I think you've created, on our calculation, you know, a couple hundred million dollars of the value by pulling that all together, getting the planning, bringing you know, bringing it together. Hmm. Um, and well, so, yeah, well, pretty incredible, pretty incredible outcome for you, but also you know the broader team within the Milligan Group. Yeah, definitely, we're a great a great team here as well, and. And like I said before, obviously, um, we wouldn't have been able to, to get to that point if it wasn't for the help of Merrick's Capital and your amazing team as well, which we're very appreciative of. Bit of a mutual admiration. Yeah, well, I, it but, definitely um, is. Uh, look, it's definitely something we're proud of. You know, it's getting behind the vision. And, and one of the things, the last 30 years for me personally, a you know, career in finance, moving paper around for much of that, you know, trading things on Screens are like one of the most exciting things. I think what Merrick's investors allow people like yourself to do is to build awesome things across Australia and, and New Zealand. So maybe just touch on the particular elements here of you know, the Hunter Station here and what's going on with the subway because I think what is not doing it just to understand that this is going to be the busiest precinct in the country with more people coming out of that train station than any other train station in the country and you're sitting right on top of it. To give some context, the wider precinct uh, involves our project site um, and then the neighbouring to metro sites. So they're, they're 
Land Holdings at the Metro announced that they would acquire some time ago in terms of in in order to build their their stations. Uh, and then um, the actual tunnel itself is another piece of infrastructure which goes underneath Hunter Street and connects the two stations. So if you can imagine on the corner of George Street and, and Hunter Street is one, and then on uh, on Bly Street is another tower, and then we're right in the middle there on the corner of Pitt and Hunter Street. So that precinct in itself, to give you a sense of the scale, is actually the size of Barangaroo in terms of square meterage. So it's about, collectively, it's about 300, a bit over 310,000 square metres of floor space. Um, and definitely in terms of dollar value, it, it's up there with the Barangaroo development. So it's, it's very, very big. What it what it's done is it's given Sydney a really strong opportunity to be able to really create a, a, a precinct development that adds significant value to that part of the city. It's been it, it's been a bit of an ad hoc part of the city for quite a while, um, particularly with Hunter Connection and there's a lot of strata development there. There's a lot of stratum and it's it's difficult to obviously unlock those sites, but it's such a prime um, piece of Sydney, so it's right right in the centre of town. And what we will see is over the next under a decade, that area will become the centre of Sydney. So the Metro and, and the, the New South Wales government, I've obviously identified that and, and they earmarked uh, that location for the Hunter Street um, train station, which essentially is the, the east-west line that connects Parramatta all the way to Hunter Street. And it also uh, connects the north-south line, which is obviously that the Martin Place metro line. It, it furthermore connects onto the Wynyard line and the rail line. So the intent of the, the metro and the New South Wales government was to enable Sydney siders from outside of Sydney get into the CBD without having to go through Central Station. There's actually, um, you know, the intent to be able to rename that whole uh, area as a as a form of central station, because it will be by far the uh, busiest metro station in the country and one of the busiest train stations in the country in terms of people coming into Sydney. To that end, the city's also announced that they're shutting down majority of Hunter Street, uh, in particular in front of our site. It'll become a, a, a plaza, essentially, which will look a lot like Martin Place. And then also uh, Hunter Street up towards Elizabeth Street will be um, only one way coming down. And then the other half of the street will be widened significantly for um, pedestrians, etc. And they essentially just want to have a, a node where people are coming into uh, Hunter Street kind of coming out onto the public domain and then dispersing through the city and take that pressure off of central station so i think i think the the uh, the latest number was from Parramatta to central uh, to to the hunter street station is 22 minutes the express train and there's one every four minutes in peak hour and it's a, a, a 10 to 12 carriage train so quite phenomenal in terms of what they're achieving. So you'll be on top of a, a changing landscape. When when we began the due diligence and we started to talk about a precinct that's bringing in 300,000 square metres mm. of new commercial space, predominantly office, pretty scary. I mean, obviously you'd done the work and made the decision as a developer, but as a borrower, obviously, sorry, as a lender, um, you know, we obviously take a conservative approach to these things and, we you know, spent months and many independent experts reports and, and with your team working through the supply constraint. What was quite interesting to us was that little air pocket of supply mm. coming through 20, 26, 27 and 28. 
So the rest of that precinct isn't going to be delivered until well into the 2030s, maybe 2031. Mm. So it seems as though you've got a, a little air pocket there where you'll have the market to yourself in terms of delivering a new building, the shiniest new building at the time when no one else is out there seeking tenants. That a fair summation. It, de- it definitely is. It's definitely something that we looked at as a as a major concern. We went we went a step further than just relying on uh, you know the timing of other projects to provide us a bit of headroom. We looked at the style of our tower, the floor plate sizes, the disposition of, of our floor space, and and tried to to ensure that our planning proposal would uh, result in a tower that's differentiated from from that. That those buildings as they come online in any respect. So there is a huge demand for thousand square meter floor plates that are brand new in Sydney. There are no examples of 55 story towers that have, you know, essentially 50 levels of thousand square meter floor plates that um, have, you know, three frontages of light and a side core and they're a premium office tower coming online. Um, but there are a lot of examples of successful older buildings like the MLC Centre, um, Australia Square, etc., where there are a vast amount of tenants that are looking to, to relocate themselves into a premium office tower. So from that perspective, we're a different product. So we're, we're kind of managing risk in that respect, but also... Yes, we've got a very good window in that part of Sydney to be able to to capture a lot of tenants very quickly. And probably the best thing is that the the metro schemes, the final designs, et cetera, will be fully known and fully understood at the time that we're doing our leasing campaign. So we can really lean on that that IP and, and sell the, the precinct vision, albeit we'll be ahead of it by a healthy three to four years. So why a question um, that I've asked you, before, but it's worth articulating. Why, why didn't you join forces with one of the consortiums who were bidding for you know, above metro developments? There's some you know, behemoths and, and huge names, and you know, I know you've engaged with many of them, and they certainly have great interest in your project. But why go it alone and go early? I have partnered with them, <laughs> um, but but on our terms. So um, what we've what we've agreed to do with the consortium that we feel um, is a, is a great consortium is to work with them from uh, an independent standpoint. I.e., uh, we we want to be in control of our own destiny and, and have, a, have a level of sovereignty, whilst they can navigate the outcomes that they need in, in a different planning system. So. One of the one of the main reasons we decided not to get involved and in, in effectively amalgamate the land into the metro land was just a timing issue. We wanted to to stay out of um, the metro's timing essentially, and and also we really do respect the city of Sydney uh, and what they've done with the central Sydney planning strategy, and we wanted to to continue our pathway with the city and and deliver on our promises to them in terms of creating uh, uh, the vision of our planning proposal, which is 50% shared and owned by the City of Sydney as well. So that, that's that, that's a it's a key element. Also, you know, we do really believe that our ability is to create the design outcome for what we think is going to be extremely successful shouldn't be understated. And, and um, by necessarily handing that over too early or partnering too early or, or, or essentially shifting our floor space into a much wider tower, um, we felt that we would lose the ability to be able to 
to create something quite remarkable. So we decided to take you know a step back and and essentially get the best of both worlds, where we can work together on a precinct, but we can control our own destiny in that respect. So James, it's you've created a lot of value by going it alone in terms of the amalgamation and working with us to procure the site. And what's your views on going ahead and building a almost two billion dollar building on your own, or entering into partnerships? Yeah. yeah. So, do we just look forward to the Milligan Tower or do you think the best path here in for someone like yourself is is partnerships? Yeah, I I'm um I'm definitely not a madman. <laughs> uh no, we we value partnerships. Uh, we've done a lot of our projects uh, end up through the construction phase in partnership and probably the 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 part that we relish the most is that not only have we pulled this very very complex project together over the last four years and, and navigated a difficult planning system and but you know we'll we'll have control over the final design and, and that input which I think is absolutely critical in in achieving those those four principles that I spoke about yeah, I think it's a it's proven to be from the outside a, an interesting model of you know the quick nimble entrepreneur pulling together a project that possibly wasn't doable in big for a big institution them recognising that, but obviously to deliver the project over a number of years and you know, the risks, but also their engineering capability and the like as you go into this probably assures of a, a great building. So it's, it's certainly we've been encouraged um, in terms of the, the partnership. It, it makes a lot of sense mm. um, and as a model to back and, as you say, whilst maybe you've matured a little bit from, say, jumping out of planes to uh, actually de-risking at the appropriate point makes a lot of sense. That's that's right. Yeah, I've definitely matured a lot through this process <laughs> as well. But um, maybe yeah. has this taken more years off your life or tours of? Uh, I I, of, uh, I, I, I routinely countries? tell my wife that uh, this process has been like all four tours combined together. You know, I don't give my old career enough credit. It, it, it does, it did teach me resilience and there's not, a, there hasn't been a day where, um, you know, we don't just say roll our sleeves up and we move forward because the reality is we're mission focused. You know, you do whatever you need to do to achieve the mission and our mission is to create one of the best towers in the centre of Australia, it's one of Australia's best cities and whatever it takes to get us there. And yeah, it's a, it's a complex complex process on that scale, but it's been extremely rewarding and, and it has matured us a lot through that process, that's for sure. I think one of the most impressive things about you and your team that we've learned over the last year is your ability to triage. Mm. And I think for anyone in the development game, they could learn a lot. You know, you just, any issue, you just sort of dealt with the most important ones, made decisions, pivoted, and didn't anchor to some emotional pinning, which I think we see too often and often makes um, certain projects unfundable from our perspective mm. because you know, it's that key rational behaviour. you just got to, in life, we all have to accept what is and, and get on with it. And it's been an amazing experience to, uh, I think, to partner with you and watch that that journey. Mm. Thank you, Adrian. Yeah, it's, again, that's probably back to the military side of things, but some things you can change, some things you can't. And if you've got to pivot, you need to pivot and quickly and, and, and do your best to look around the corner for the next problem before it hits you in the face. Because, um, you know, we've got teams of people that, that are looking directly at problems at the time and, and that's their job to manage those. And, and my job is to see around the corner and do what I need to do to ensure that 
we achieve our goals and, and the mission. And that's that's um, what I try to focus 80% of my time on. Well, James, I think we've run out of time today. So thanks for your time. And um, in, you know, it's been a, a big year. Hopefully you're going to have a bit of downtime. You know, you've had an addition to the family with a, another, another kid that's come about. Yeah. The birth of this project, trying to deliver another yeah, ho- hopefully. Um, also, Adrian, before you go, I do want to say, mate, just personally how impressed I am with your team and your business. From a from a personal point of view, they uh, the integrity and the hard work and tenacity that they have shown. I mean, you you've given me some you know compliments, but it's been extremely impressive. And and you know, in our view, we feel that we've found our lender and partner for life. So I really do appreciate it. Thanks, James. As I said before, a bit of a mutual admiration. <laughs> I'm a bit sickening, I think, for our investors and listeners. But, yeah, ultimately, I think combined, we're going to help you deliver a great project. Fantastic. Thanks. Thank you. Merex Capital is an Australian fund manager delivering a truly differentiated multi-strategy offering with extensive investment capability and global experience spanning multiple asset classes. To learn more about Merex Capital, head to www.merexcapital.com. 